So I want to start today by talking about packing and moving. So when I was in college, when I went out from home at 18, I just took with me all the things that I needed, right? It was pretty limited, the amount of stuff I had. And after about eight years, I went through a season in which I moved every single year. Literally every year, for whatever reason, I ended up in a new residence. And this process showed me something about myself that I didn't know. You see, there was the moment almost every single time I moved where I would have this revelation, this, holy crap, I own a lot more stuff than I thought I did. Has anyone else been there? That I went from home with what I needed, but every single year, little by little, I added to my stuff and I added to my stuff, and it was only when I started packing and unpacking that my eyes kind of was like, I didn't even know I owned this anymore. Like, I would literally find boxes that I hadn't unpacked in five years. And yet, I lugged them around with me everywhere I went. I just kept moving it and moving it and moving it. And it's actually still a problem. I just wanted to show you this. Um, these were just two things I found in my closet this week. The first one is a t-shirt that I got from Russia. It says, Skaji vodka niet, which means say no to vodka. It's about two sizes too small for me now. And if I put this on, it'd be really embarrassing. But apparently, I still need it. Or my favorite one, this is from high school. I don't even know what this is. It's got like a leather, like a leopard print collar. It says American Fluid Technology on it and the name Dan. That's not my name. I can only assume this was like a Halloween thing. I don't really know. But I still own it, <laughs> like a decade later. And it's one of those things where I just repeatedly would move and move, and I would talk myself into keeping all of it. I would look at this stuff and be like, well, I might need that one day. Oh, I can't throw that away, because who knows, I might need to put on the Dan jacket. Until one year, when I just got sick of it. I got so sick of how exhausting this process was. And I just went into it, this one move, with a clear mind and a merciless focus that I was just going to gut everything. If I had not used it in like a year or two years, it was gone. Trash, donation, whatever it was. And I'm not going to lie, it was the most freeing year of my life. <laughs> like just throwing this stuff out, clearing my house. And the move was a lot easier also. And I bring this up because I think this happens more often than we think it does with our spirituality. I think over the course of our lives, as we walk this life of faith, we start to build up just junk in our life. Things that just get piled up on top of our spirituality year by year. And sometimes it's good. Sometimes it's the stuff that makes us, like our spirituality, our own. We meet people who speak to us in new ways, and it changes the way we think about God. But I think more often than not, what we add to our spirituality is usually pretty negative. I think over the years, and this is just my experience, I started packing on top of my faith boxes of shame, manipulation, judgment, sometimes self-loathing. And before long, we end up walking this life of faith without even realizing that we're lugging this stuff around with us every time we move, season to season. We just carry it with us. We never stop and ask why. 
And we certainly don't usually stop and ask, do I actually even need this anymore? And at some point, I think all of us need to experience a decluttering, a clearing house of our faith. I think we often never stop and learn by unlearning, where we take a season to unlearn the stuff that, quite frankly, we just don't need anymore, to unpack, to clean house, to throw it away, because it's not what it was meant to be, to get back to the essentials. And that is what we're going to explore in this series. It's called 12 Words, because we're going to look at 12 words that I think we will define the essentials of spirituality. We're going to declutter our spiritual houses. We're going to get back to the basics. And if you've been here for two plus years, you're probably like, I think I heard this series before, because we ran it about two years ago. And we're doing it again for some clear reasons. I think the first is that it was probably the most impactful sermon series that I've ever been a part of at this community. It started small groups. It started more conversations pastorally than I think I've ever had with members of this community. It produced some real change in people. And we decided even two years ago that it was so impactful that we were going to start making it our flagship series. We were going to repeat it every couple of years because we so believe that our community over time just needs to get back to the essentials. And that's what we're going to do. We're going to take these 12 essentials and we're going to dive into them over the next 12 weeks. But we're going to do it from a new angle. You see, what we're going to do this time around is we're going to look at them through their opposites. We're going to look at the 12 essentials through the boxes of spiritual junk that we pack on top of them. The things that we've picked up along the way in our house that prevent us from getting back to the roots. We're going to look at things like control, despair, self-deception. And we're going to talk about what it might look like to clean house a little bit and get back to where we were supposed to be. And we're going to do it by talking about boxes. What box is in our house that we just have to get rid of if we want to get this spirituality thing right? And this week, we're going to talk about everyone's favorite, control. We are going to talk about the nature of control and how it keeps us from getting to one of the most essential spiritual foundations that we have, powerlessness and surrender. And we're going to look at it through a book called Job. Before we get there, I'm going to talk about my best friend, Henry. This is me mean mugging and Henry in college. You see, Henry always comes to my mind when I think about control because he had a distinct lack of interest in controlling anything, especially when it came to being on time, being on time, or being on time. And it used to just drive me crazy. He was just never on time, y'all. And what I loved about Henry is that though this attribute of like carefreeness was to some degree annoying at times, it was also incredibly powerful and positive. You see, Henry had this ability to just make friends with anybody. Because he wasn't trying to control or manipulate who they were, he would just let people be. And thus he was able to interact with them without judgment, without really care. He also had this innate ability at times to just drop everything and care for the people he loved. You see, a lot of us have a path that we're on and we gotta get there by this time. 
and the needs come our way, and we just like, well, I can't stop because I got to get there by you know Saturday. So I'm sorry, I can't help you move. Sorry, I can't help you, sick grandma. That would mess up my life journey a little too much. And Henry had this amazing ability just to care for people because he wasn't trying to micromanage his life. And I think I admire this about Henry because I am the exact opposite. If you know anything about me, I'm a control freak. I am completely incapable of letting my life just be. And I think a lot of us in this room probably relate more than we want to admit. How many of us have a vision for our lives that tells us, I know how things ought to be. And if I could just control a few more people or circumstances or events, then it would go that way and everything would be okay. And then little things start getting in the way, start getting frustrated, because we're like, well, no, you're keeping me from making my life okay. And I feel out of control. Which is all well and good, except for it will start to make us sick. And I think it inevitably will break us if we live in that space. Because, quite frankly, it's just not reality. The truth of our lives is that there is a hula hoop around our bodies and we cannot control anything outside of that at the end of the day. And I'm going to be honest, sometimes I can't even control what's inside this hula hoop. Even when I want to, I can make the best plans, I can do my best, but at the end of the day, I cannot make things go the way I want fundamentally. And when we're obsessed with control, when we live in a delusion that we can, what happens when an event comes along, a circumstance, a person who doesn't go the way you want it to? What happens when something comes along that shatters that delusion? I think we break when reality catches up with us. And that's why I'm going to touch on the book of the Bible today called Job. It's actually one of my favorite books because I'm a morbid and dark and disturbing person. <laughs> and it has a lot to say about the nature of control and powerlessness in spirituality. You see, I love the book of Job because it's perhaps the most unique, universal, and timeless book of the Bible. The author is completely unknown. It's a mix of oral tradition and written tradition that's been crammed together and edited over what they think is hundreds of years. It's an ancient book. And it's incredibly unique when it comes to other biblical books. For example, did you know that there are no Israelites in the book of Job? It takes place completely outside the rest of the biblical story. There also is no specific location other than just this one word that we don't really know where it is actually found in the ancient Near East. And there's also no specific time. They don't date it. The author does not seem to care at all about history. It's almost like saying once upon a time in a land far, far away. And it's structured and written more as a parable or a piece of folklore or a thought exercise than it is a history or a literal story. I mean, it's literally 30, like nine chapters of poetry and philosophical debate, and then three chapters of actual storyline, which makes it a very bizarre but interesting book in our Bible. And what also means is that it's incredibly easy to under, misunderstand. Because if you don't keep all of Job together, and you start plucking things out of it, you're going to end up with points that Job was never trying to make. So that's what we're going to do today. Because we're going to look at control and powerlessness through a bird's eye view walkthrough of the entire book of Job. 
We're just going to dive in because we want to see what it has to teach us about this control thing that seems to be cluttering our spiritual house. So the book of Job begins, and we're introduced with this guy named Job. And in the context of the Bible, he's basically Prince Charming. In some translations, it says he is without sin. Other ones say he has absolute integrity. The point is more that there is no one else in the Bible other than like Jesus Christ that is written about in this way. It's over the top. It's almost absurd. They're just like, Job is the best person who ever lived. Sometimes he would even give sacrifices to God just in case his kids might have sinned. And it's not supposed to be <laughs> someone that we can imagine actually existing in our world. He is totally righteous. He is a man who literally lives out the Proverbs, the wisdom of God. So we start to think as the reader, we know where this story is going. God's going to call him. He's going to go do something great. He's probably going to get a lot of blessing. And the author almost immediately after introducing Job starts dashing our expectations. You see, once he's been introduced, we go to this heavenly courtroom in which God is hanging out with some heavenly advisors. And it's this metaphorical scene of God as a king talking to the people that are on his heavenly council. And there's this one in particular named the accuser who acts as a prosecutor of sorts, an investigator. And he comes to God and he level, levies an accusation against Job. He basically says, is Job actually righteous? Or is Job only righteous because you've blessed him so much? Is your blessing just making it easy for him to live righteously? And is it actually not a part of his character at all? And this metaphorical scene is used to set up the central question that sets the table for the next 35 chapters of the book. A philosophical debate, parable, and th thought exercise that basically addresses one question. What does it mean that good people suffer in our universe? What does that mean about God? What does that mean about the way the world works? Because from this moment forward in the story, Job begins to suffer greatly. Over two chapters, Job loses everything in concentric circles. First his possessions, then his family, then his health. And he's sitting there in lament, in grief, and he has three friends who come to comfort him. And for seven days, his friends just sit with him in quiet, just present. They just sit with him and mourn with him. And if the book ended there, that would be it. But as my favorite teacher in seminary put it, for about three verses, Job's friends get it exactly right. They mourn with their friend. And then for the next 34 chapters, they get it exactly wrong. Because they start trying to tell Job why he is suffering. That's just some free pastoral advice, y'all. Not good. And this conversation and this debate and this poetry forms the next 34 chapters, which are the backbone of the book. And what's amazing about it is it's actually set up like a trial. If you know anything about the ancient Near East, they set it up exactly like a trial in Israel would have gone. Basically, Job calls God to court and says, explain yourself. And he starts raising his defense. He starts accusing God. Job's friends defend God. They call witnesses. They try to explain why Job is suffering. And the Job's argument is actually pretty simple. God is just. 
I am innocent, which means this isn't divine punishment, which means that Job is either, or God is either unjust or incompetent because he doesn't know what just people look like. And Job's friends fire back. Well, God is just, which means that God does rule the universe by strict black and white forms of justice. Good people get good things, bad people get bad things. And then number three, that means Job must have done something to deserve his suffering. And they even start like making things up. There's this great line where they basically accuse Job of being like a Batman who beats up widows. Like he's like, well, maybe Job, you're going around at night beating up widows. That's why this is happening to you. Or at other points, they're like, well, you actually probably deserve worse. So you should be grateful for only losing your family. Or my favorite one, it's building character, Job. Just smile through it. All of them assume Job is lying and that the only way this makes sense in their worldview is that he has done something to deserve what is happening to him. Which is interesting because we as the reader know that's not true. That Job's friends are wrong. And what's incredibly bizarre about the book of Job is that all throughout, God remains silent. For this entire 35-chapter section, God does not speak. Job lobs accusations at God. Job's friends defend God very poorly. At one point, one of Job's friends even says he's speaking for God. And the entire time, the entire debate, God remains silent. That is, until Job gets tired of debating with his friends and goes to God directly. And he basically comes to God in prayer and says, God, you owe me some answers. You've got some explaining to do because I don't deserve this. And in chapter 38, God finally speaks. And it's one of the most epic scenes in the entire Bible. It begins with, then Lord, the Lord answered Job from the whirlwind. First, note that you've probably made a mistake. Like, time to back off when God starts speaking to you from a whirlwind. Who is this darkening my counsel? With words lacking knowledge, prepare yourself like a man. Now I will interrogate you and you will answer me, which is like the oh moment of Job. But what's fascinating, probably the most fascinating part of the book of Job, is that after this, God doesn't respond to a single point that was raised in the entire debate. At no point in God's response does he address their complaints, their arguments, any of the, the evidence that they bring before him. It's actually really interesting because they don't even address why suffering exists. Instead, God gives three responses that seem entirely out of left field, but when we understand them, are actually quite profound. First, God begins by walking Job through the entire cosmos, literally the whole universe. We read it for our scripture today. Where were you when I laid the earth's foundations? Tell me if you know. Who set its measurements? Surely you know. On what were its footings sunk? Who laid its cornerstone while the morning stars sang in unison and all the divine being shouted? Who enclosed the sea behind doors when it burst forth from the womb when I made the clouds its garment? In the dense clouds its wrap when I imposed my limit on it, put a bar in doors and said, and I love this, you may come this far and no further. Here you proud waves stop. 
God's first response to Job is not addressing his issues. Rather, it is to remind Job of his limited perspective, his finiteness as a human being in light of the infinite universe. A challenge that should hit us all. I think we have a great human tendency to believe that we are the center of our universe, and thus our entire perspective is correct on how it works and how it should operate. That we look at ourselves and we believe that our perspective is the only perspective, which puts us in control of it. More than that, God fundamentally rejects that notion. When he speaks to Job, he says that you are totally lacking in an infinite perspective, which means that your ability to believe that you should be the one to set how the universe should go is about as groundless as an argument as you can make. Because you just don't even see reality outside of your small worldview. Which means you also certainly can't doubt God's competency from where you're standing. So what I would say is God first challenges the finite, limited perspective when it comes to determining how an infinite universe must work. His second response is even more interesting. It's actually really sassy. Because he basically, from that limited perspective, challenges Job's ability to understand justice. He basically says, Job, what if I gave you the ability to run the universe for just one day with this black and white, very simple, good people get good things, bad people get bad things immediately version of how justice should work? Let's just see how that would go. And he uses the metaphor of grabbing a rug by each corner and just flinging all life off of it. Because what God gets at, what God hits Job with, is a reminder that an infinite universe cannot be built on finite, limited, or simplistic views of justice. In the end of the day, our universe is complex. And thus, the justice that operates it must be too. Because when it becomes simplistic, it lacks infinite wisdom. And there is no opportunity for growth, for change, for life to exist at all. So God confronts Job with his limited human understanding of justice in light of a more infinite one, grounded in trusting God's wisdom. And then the final response that God gives is he challenges Job to accept the paradox and complexity of our lives. He comes to him with these metaphors of a, of a leviathan and a behemoth, which in the ancient world were the symbols of disorder and chaos. And he basically says, Job, look at our universe. In the midst of all of the beauty that I have made, there is always some chaos. It's not black and white. It's all mixed together. There's order, disorder, pain, health, beauty, loss, which means that it's certainly not simple. And in fact, we break it when we try to make it so. More so, I think what he challenges Job to realize is that much of his pain comes from his refusing to see the universe as it actually is. I think Job so badly wants the universe to be simple so he can know why, that he starts thinking about living in a universe that if he actually created would be a living hell. God challenges Job and his friends in their either-or thinking that prevents them from accepting and living within a complex universe as God made it. And I think God responds this way. I think he responds without addressing their points because he knows that the individual points don't matter. At the root of what's going on is control. 
At the foundation of their worldview is a subtle way in which they think they are in control of their universe and that they should be. What do I mean by that? Just think about Job's friends. Think about how they see the universe. Good for good, bad for bad, immediately done because that's justice. All that does is turn God into a cosmic gumball machine. We look at God and we look at our lives and we see him as something that we can manipulate and control. In fact, what we do is we see him as something that we can put quarters in, turn the lever, and get the blessings out of. We look at God and we say, if we could just get enough gold stars, if we could just control enough things in our lives, if we could just not make so many mistakes, well, then we would be able to create a universe in which I never have to suffer again. And this infects this thing, this control thing, makes our entire universe a transactional relationship with our actions determining exactly how our life will always go. So we look at God and we say, well, if I put in prayer, I'll get health out of it. Or if I put in good service, I'm going to get the new car. I'm going to get more money. I'm going to get the relationship. Or if I put in a smile at strangers walking around, I'm going to get infinite blessing. And when things go wrong, when we are proven that this is not how our universe works, what do we do? Well, I put in the wrong quarters. Or maybe I didn't put enough quarters in. And what God challenges in the book of Job directly is that this worldview does not work when you look at our reality. You see, it may be comforting to think that we can control everything in our lives, but inevitably there comes a point where our control fails and we start to become sick. I mean, just think about it. How many of us look and we say, I didn't get what I wanted. I didn't get the right person to love me. I got sick. I got hurt. And it's not because that sometimes happens. It's because I wasn't good enough. I didn't pray enough. I wasn't faithful enough. I'm being punished. Or... I didn't get what I wanted because I didn't control enough things. And if I could just make a couple more things in my life, just make them go the way I want them to, never going to hurt again. If I could just be righteous enough, suffering would end. And I think control makes us look at reality in this way. It makes us look at our lives, and we just start to see it as just something we need to manipulate and make it fit perfectly in how we think it should be rather than accepting what is and being changed by it. And I think when we live in this place of should be, must be, ought to be, we get tired, don't we? We start to feel sick. It's just like shoveling and shoveling and trying to force our universe to be something it's not. And we just get so tired. And I know that this is true from my life. You see, I brought up Henry in the beginning because he is a good example of what I am not. But this story is actually my, my story of powerlessness. You see, there was a moment in my early 20s when I was doing everything right. I was serving in junior high. I was going to Guatemala. I was in seminary. I was literally the person where I'm just saying, God, my faithfulness, and it was going up and to the right. I'm putting in the quarter, I'm getting out the blessing. There's a problem with control, because I think it can infect our spirituality a lot more subtly than we think. 
Because when you're in that space of control, you start looking at people, for example, who make bad choices and saying, I know how their life should go. Well, if they would just listen to me, then they wouldn't be in this situation. Well, if I could just make them hear the gospel this way, they wouldn't be so hurt so often. It becomes arrogance and judgmentalism. And I, uh, I had a meeting with Henry in which he came to me with just a broken relationship in his life. And he was just very honest about it. And the, the little gears start turning, and I'm just saying, I know what Henry needs. I know how to solve this problem. I know how to fix it. And what it came out as, as it often does, is fixing it came out as judgment. It came out as, let me tell you how to do your life. And Henry looked at me, and he said, my entire life I've never felt judged by you, Mike. And he got up, and he walked away. And I was furious. How dare you? As I dispense my cosmic wisdom to you, as I fix your life, you're going to walk away from me? And I just didn't talk to him for a couple weeks. Eventually, we ran into each other at a party, and I, I did say sorry. You know, we daffed it up and, and kind of went our own ways. But about a week later, I just had really been stewing on this and realizing how wrong I was. And I just reached out because I wanted to make that amends, right? And he agreed. And as I was leading up to this time, we are going to hang out. I was thinking of how that conversation was going to go. Anyone been there? Well, I'll say this, and then he'll say this, and then he'll admit he was wrong, and I'll admit I was wrong. And this is going to be perfect. I'm going to get exactly what I want out of this, the little control, right? Well, about 9 a.m. of the day I went to, supposed to meet Henry, I got a call from a mutual friend. The first thing I heard was Henry is gone. He's gone. You see, he had been killed the night before in a, a one-car accident. And in that moment, whatever delusion of control that I had was gone. The belief that I get to decide who lives and who dies. The belief that I get to decide how someone behaves or how I behave. The idea that I get to decide when the last time I have a conversation with a person is. Just gone. And whatever control I thought I had over my world outside of this vanished. And I think that's the worst part of control. I think we hardly even realize we're carrying this box that's so full of it until something comes into our life that forces us to admit that we are powerless. We don't even know we're carrying it until something shakes us away and says, you're not in control. When the relationship ends that you did everything right to save. When your financial stability collapses because a global economy didn't go the way you wanted it to. When your family is hurt by someone else that you don't even know. Or maybe it's when your health begins to fail and you did everything right. I think we all struggle with control more than we want to admit. We all do. We try to control relationships, events, circumstances, people, at all costs because we say we have to to make our world go the right way. And everything breaks. And I think that's why I love 
the book of Job, and I especially love its ending. You see, after God had finished speaking to Job, Job responds beautifully. He responds with something that I think can teach us about what healthy spiritual powerlessness looks like. We read, Job says, he answered the Lord, I know you can do anything. No plan of yours can be opposed successfully. You said, who is this darkening counsel without knowledge? I have indeed spoken about things I didn't understand. Wonders beyond my comprehension. You said, listen and I will speak. My ears had heard you, but now my eyes see you. Therefore, I relent and I find comfort on dust and ashes. See, God goes on to rebuke Job's friends. He goes on to remind them that they were wrong, that it's not about Job deserving or not deserving, that our universe is complex. More than that, Job is restored, but it's not because he did something to like, deserve it. It's not because he's owed. The end of the book of Job does not just contradict the entire thing that's taken place. No, because what it recognizes is that our life comes in cycles and seasons. And that while we have limited control over who and what we do, ultimately it moves and it moves. And what Job finds in a surrender to that is that it's a gift. Because I think for once in his life, he stopped trying to manipulate it and just found gratitude for it. That every moment of this life is undeserved and it is a gift. And at the end, Job finds peace. But it's not a cheap kind of peace. It's the infinite peace of powerlessness. It's grounded in a deep awareness of our own limitations and our trust in an infinitely wise God who does control our universe. And what Job does is he lets himself be changed by coming to understand who God is. You see, God never tells Job why he's suffering. He doesn't even try. He knows that it almost isn't the point. There's never going to be a time in this mortal body in which suffering will just stop. It's part of our complex existence. But what we can find is how. How do we suffer? And we look at Job's final response, and I think we find a truth there. What does Job say? I know you can do anything. Recognition and trust in the wisdom of an infinite God. I have indeed spoken about things I didn't understand. Humility, a surrender to mystery, a willingness to have an awareness of our own limited perspective in light of infinity, and to rest and exist within that. My ears had heard about you, but now my eyes have seen you. Are we willing to experience, accept, and be changed by our reality? Or are we going to spend our entire lives just denying it and fight pushing against it? Therefore, I relent, which is also translated as repent, which just means a change of our consciousness. Are we willing to understand how we fit into infinity and just change how we understand our lives? Surrender. And I find comfort on dust and ashes. 
It's a peace that can transcend and include what our desire for control could never accept. The totality of a complex, mysterious, sometimes painful, but always beautiful universe. All held together, none of it separated, nothing either or, both and. And I think this is what powerlessness looks like. I think it looks like a true surrender to an infinite God that is in control of our universe and a willingness to acknowledge that we are not and to get rid of the defense mechanisms that come whenever we think we are. It is a surrender that leads us to say that we need help because this isn't our universe to run as we think it should be. It is not apathetic. I don't think it's about giving up. I don't think it's about enabling. I don't think it's about not owning what I can control. Rather, I think it's a deep acceptance of what I can control in this universe. An ability to stop obsessing, manipulating, and forcing ourselves on a world because we think we can make it run the way we want it to. And from that stance, we can take ownership for what we can control, and we can trust the rest to a God that is far bigger than ourselves. Would anyone like to do that with some of the circumstances in your life? That's peace. That's trust. That's spirituality. The essential. So I want to close today by asking you some questions first about control. Where do you need to unpack this box? What do you need to unpack from this box? How are you in traffic? If you don't think you struggle with this, how do you do? Do you get angry because you're 50 seconds late and you yell at people who can't hear you? because you had a plan for today and it's a little bit delayed? How do you respond when your significant other doesn't do something that you wanted them to in the way you wanted them to? Do you still love that person? Do you get passive aggressive? Do you get angry? Do you find yourself looking at people and saying, I would love them if they just would change this thing about them. Then I could be okay with who they are. Do you find yourself feeling that you need to be perfect to earn love? I can't leave my house without looking perfect. I can't make a mistake today because then my husband might not love me. Is perfectionism where you find your control? Are there people in your life that you can't let live? Your kids, your parents, your friends, you just can't let them make their own choices because you're sure that something terrible will happen if they do. I think we all struggle with control more than we think we do, don't we? And lastly, where do you need to find and admit powerlessness? Is it over a relationship? Did something break and you just, no matter how hard you try, you just can't fix it? Is it over a substance, a behavior, a pattern of your life, an emotion, that no matter how hard you try to white-knuckle it and to push it down, that box just keeps opening and opening and spilling out into your life. Maybe it's an emotional cycle. 
oh, today, God, I'm going to be so nice to my kids. And then five minutes later, shut up. Anybody? Is it judgmentalism? Do you find yourself addicted to judging other people? Well, if they would just listen to me, God, they would be okay. Is it shame? Are you powerless over shaming yourself? The tape of I'm not good enough, I'll never be good enough, I just can't make a mistake. What keeps playing out in your life that you just can't seem to get a grip on? Because I think that's where we need to admit powerlessness, surrender control, and find a God who wants to carry that too. For me, it's control. And it has cost me so much in my life. It has cost me healthy relationships. My state of mind, my anxiety, my depression. I live looking backwards and I'm anxious about the future and I miss the present moment. It cost me the last few weeks I had with my best friend. I mean, that's real. We all need to be honest about this. That's why Job is so universal and timeless. We all struggle with it in denial or self-honesty are your two choices. But the good news is this. We have an infinite God that is present, that is accessible, that is in control, and he is willing to help us through this too. We just have to recognize ourselves for what we are and be willing to surrender to who he is. To find peace and powerlessness. So, as you go out this week, what was that thing as I asked you those questions that popped up? What would your life look like if you let it go? What would it mean for you to find peace? Amen. Amen.